0: The Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 18, verse 9. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, said, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we come to hear from you and may your word speak to us. May we hear your voice. Lord, may we see your great plan that you've made a way that those sinners, we might be made right in your sight. Lord, thank you for your word. May you speak to us. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing in our series through the gospel of Luke, and we come to this passage in Luke 18, 9 through 14, and it raises an interesting question. You know, if you were asked, what is the worst vice? What is the greatest evil? How would you answer? Now, I know that From James 2.1, we can say that all sins are equal and that they lead to us being condemned by God. But is that saying that every sin is equal? Is there a great vice or a great sin that leads to many other sins? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes that the greatest vice, the greatest evil is pride. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world hates when he sees it in someone else, and of which any people except Christians even imagine they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think that I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I very seldom met anyone who is not more who was not a Christian, who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Well, is Lewis overstating the case? Well, this morning Jesus is going to show us that pride causes us to put ourselves in the place of God. It causes us to see that God owes us. And it also causes us to put others down. In other words, pride attacks the most basic requirement of loving God and loving others. This morning, if you have a bulletin, you can flip to the back and there's an outline of the sermon. Because first, through verses 9-13, through we're going to see that pride produces differing mindsets. Then in verse 14, we're going to see that pride leads to different destinies. And then lastly, we're going to kind of move away from this passage and question, well, how can we put our pride to death? But first, Jesus' parable here is following a parable right before this in verses 1 through 8. It was telling of continuing in prayer because, as it says in chapter 18, verse 1, they might lose heart. So he told a parable to encourage the discouraged. But now he tells a parable in the other way because this parable is to humble the proud. In fact, Luke says they trusted in themselves. That they were righteous. You know, trusting ourselves is really the essence of pride. We're saying we have all the resources in ourselves when we really need God. And that then leads to looking down on others. A couple weeks ago, I and a few others took some high schoolers to a nicer restaurant. And then we went to the symphony. And as we went at the restaurant, we had a little quiz. We tried to make it fun and talked about various manners that you have when you go to a nice restaurant. And then we ask the question, well, why do you learn these manners? Is it so that you can then kind of lean back in your chair and look over at Sammy Simpleton and scoff <laughs> using his entree fork for the salad? <laughs> How could he do such a thing? No, that's not the point of manners at all. The point of manners is so that everyone can enjoy the meal. You might like to prop your feet up. But they don't really care for them next to their salad. So we learn how to sit. And we learn how to use our utensils. Because we care about others. But the sad reality is that we like to take lots of things, even manners, and use them to feel better than others. To look down at the Sammy Simpletons of the world who don't know such things and scoff. We get prideful. We get superior. And to combat the proud mindset that we have, Jesus tells this parable of two different men, a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. Now you have to realize that in their minds, the people who are listening to Jesus' parable, the Pharisee is the good guy. And this is very important because if you've read the Bible, if you're familiar with the Bible, you hear a Pharisee and you automatically think, well, that's the bad guy in the story. And yet, that's not how they would have heard it. The Pharisees were the very moral people in their society. They were the people who kept the law, who honored the traditions. And many of them, though, in the Gospels are painted negatively. But in their mind, the Pharisees, they're the firefighters, they're the nurses, they're the people who serve the poor like Mother Teresa, and they're going, oh, the Pharisee goes to the temple. That's the good guy. In contrast, when they hear a tax collector they're hearing the very worst in society. This is not just someone who takes their money, but the way they set up their tax collectors is people bid to get the job. They bid with the Roman government, and then the Roman government let them extort more than they needed. And so these tax collectors were seen as cheats and co-conspirators with the enemy. If you've read The Hiding Place with uh, Corrie Ten Boom, it tells of her ministry, how she was taken into concentration camps that she tried to help Jews. And later, after the war, she made it out, and she set up a ministry to help. You'll know that the hardest people to serve were those who had helped the Nazis. No one else in their country wanted to help them. They were conspirators with the enemy. That's what the people hear of when they hear a tax collector. You know, if we modernize this, it would be like hearing a nurse and a prostitute went to the church to pray. Well, you automatically know which one is supposed to be seen positively and negatively. But in verse 11, Jesus goes on because he starts telling of the Pharisee. Because the Pharisee, he stands by himself. Now here, this is a very short parable and every detail matters. And standing by himself is almost a kind of cocky certainty that he can approach God however he wants. He then prayed, I thank you, God. So this prayer begins with the appearance of godliness. He's thanking God. That's a good thing to do. Except, it ends up being a backhanded way of praising himself. If you notice, five times after he thanks God, it's, I did this, and I did this, and I didn't do this, and I didn't do that. There's no praise for God in this prayer. It's all about him. And in fact, this prayer never asks God for anything. He doesn't need anything from God, because in his mind, He's done it all himself. And so here he's praying. But after thanking God, he continues, I'm not like other men. And he lists three things. Extortioners, unjust, and adulterers. Now again, the people who are hearing this for the first time are thinking this is a pretty good guy. An extortioner. He's someone who's greedy, who steals money from others. Uh, Someone who is unjust. That's someone who's being unfaithful in their workplace. An adulterer, that's someone who's cheating on their wife. So, with this man's wallet, with his work, with his wife, he's faithful. You know, how many people today, if you ask them, have you always been faithful with others with money? Have you always been honest at work? Have you ever thought or actually cheated on your spouse? They'd be able to go, oh, I could do that. That was me. I've been that like that. No, most of us would be able to say, well, yeah, I've kind of, I've messed up on those. Yep, this is a very moral guy. He could say, I have done all these things. Not only that, he's not like this tax collector. Now, this tax collector implies kind of a moral superiority, a disgust. And that's, as we're going to see, the real problem. You know, the problem for the Pharisee is not the good that he's done, it's not the evil that he's avoided. The problem is that he feels superior to others because he's done it. Well, he goes on in verse 12, because he not only points out the things he avoids, he brings out his polished trophy of the things that he does. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, basically he's saying, look, this is God's standard here. I've gone way above it. The law says to fast on the day of atonement. One time a year, I do 104 fast. Two times a week, 52 weeks. I'm a really good guy. The law says give 10% of what you earn. I give 10% of even what's just given to me. Everything I give, 10%. In other words, he's flaunting that he does more than God expected. Again though, we're so used to hearing the Pharisee in the negative light that we're going to miss the emphasis if you don't understand that most of the people here are hearing this positively. This guy's avoiding common major sins that we deal with. And he has a life that's very dedicated to God. Those are good things. Yet, he's cocky. He's arrogant about it. Well, what is Jesus going to say? Well, before that, he brings up the clear sinner, the tax collector. We read of him in verse 13. Because the tax collector, he barely comes into the temple. He's so ashamed, he can barely get in. And there he starts to beat his breast and pray. The beating of his breast it was a sign of deep contrition. In their culture, only on the most extreme circumstances would men beat their chests. And here, because he knows of his sin, he beats his chest. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In contrast to all of the eyes of the Pharisee, <coughs> he has a request. He needs something from God. He's focused on what God can do, not what he has done. Except it's very interesting. His call for mercy is not a generic call for mercy. It's very specific. If you look up the word mercy here, it's not the common word we use for mercy. It's the word that is used on the Day of Atonement. It's the word that we use used for the Ark of the Covenant. And this is a little history, so let me explain. You can go and read in Exodus 25, that God had the children of Israel make the Ark of the Covenant. It was a golden box. And inside this box, they put three things. They put the manna that God gave them to provide in the wilderness. They put in Aaron's staff that budded almond blossoms at the end, and they put in the Ten Commandments. And every one of those was a picture of God's provision, but also every one of those was a reminder of, that they had grumbled against God, and so he had to give them in. They tried to rebel against Aaron, so he reminded them that Aaron was the leader, and the Ten Commandments reminded them of their sin. And yet then, on top of this golden box, they put a lid. And that lid is called the mercy seat. That's the word the person, the tax collector uses. The idea behind the word mercy seat is that of a covering. And so let's visualize, because... They would use this Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. You can read of this in Leviticus 16. And what would happen is on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would get two lambs. And he would come and he would bring them and he would sacrifice one. And then he would take the blood from that lamb and he would go and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So what's going on is metaphorically, God is looking down and as he looks at the Ark of the Covenant, what does he see? He sees the manna. He sees Aaron's staff. He sees the Ten Commandments, and that reminds him of our sin, our failure. But he provided something, because on top of that, he put a mercy seat. And on top of that is sprinkled the blood of the Lamb, so that he no longer sees the reminders of our sin. He sees the picture of what covers our sin. And on the Day of Atonement, it's pointing to the fact that You can be cleansed. You can be forgiven because of the lamb. Because I said the priest brought two lambs, but he only sacrificed one. What did he do with the other? Well, he laid his hands on it, and he confessed the sins of the people, and then he had it go into the wilderness. The sins were taken away. And here, as the tax collector calls for mercy, it's not just a generic mercy. He calls up for this mercy of God that would not look on him as a sinner, It would look on the mercy seat. It would look on the blood of the Lamb, so that God would have mercy on him. And so here we are being given a picture of different mindsets, of two different approaches to God. One man approaches God based on all that he's done and hasn't done. The other man approaches and said, I can only approach you based on the sacrifice that you will make for us. I cannot come on my own. I am a sinner we've seen that pride approaches god noting how good i am and almost saying god you owe me because i have done all this i am worthy of praise it takes the place of god and looks down on others but jesus is now going to show us that that pride is going to lead to two different destinies look at verse 14 jesus says i tell you this man meaning the tax collector Rather than the other, sorry, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other being the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is explaining here it's not because of their actions, it's how they view themselves, it's how you feel about the good that you do and the evil that you avoid. The Pharisee proudly thought he was a good and righteous person. He exalted himself, and yet his pride is going to lead to his humiliation. In contrast, the tax collector declared that he wasn't righteous. He humbled himself, and that's going to lead to his exaltation, his justification. To put it simply, if we think we're righteous by ourselves, then God says you won't be declared righteous. By Him. Now we have to be very careful here, because is the application of this passage of, okay, so it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, we should sin as much as we can, because like the tax collector, he's going to go scot-free, and you go and do everything you should, like the Pharisee, and doesn't matter. That's not the point at all, for Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus told the Pharisee in our story, they didn't hear of a self-righteous hypocrite. They heard of a deeply moral person. However, the problem is not that we need to be a little bit more moral. The problem is we have to be perfect. 100% all the time. The problem is that we're dead in our sins. That we can't do anything to be made perfect. Holy before God, you know, our sin is so deep that it can only be cleansed by the blood. As we sang earlier, what can my what for my sin can atone? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If anything else could have brought atonement, then Jesus died in vain. If our yet our condition was so hopeless and God's gift so perfect that, like the blood on the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant. We can be perfect. We can be accepted by God. You know, part of the problem is we just have not realized how holy God is and how far short of that we fall. It reminds me of the story of a man who was feeling like he had an inferiority complex, so he went to talk to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist listened to him for a while and said, Okay, let me run some tests and he ran the test and he said, Come back in a couple of weeks. And the man came back and the psychiatrist said, look, I have good news for you and bad news for you. The good news is you actually don't have an inferiority complex. The bad news is you're just an inferior person. And the man was upset. He goes, well, I'm going to get a second opinion. And he said, okay, you're ugly too. <laughs> so here, this man actually was worse. Now humor aside, we compare ourselves. I'm inferior to you, I'm inferior to you, or I'm better than you. And yet we're always comparing horizontally. And God wants us to compare vertically. That before a holy God, we fall so short that attending church, going and giving to the poor, though those are good things, they are not going to make you holy in God's sight. And Jesus says when we humble ourselves, we will be exalted. He says, we will be justified. Now that's a big word. What does justified mean? Well, it's a term that comes from court, like a legal court. You know, if you go to court and you're, con- you're charged of a crime, and you're not convicted yet, then the verdict you might hear is either guilty or not guilty. But you don't know. What is going to be said at the end? Is the jury going to declare me guilty, or are they going to say Not guilty. Well, in justification, it's actually better than that. Because God doesn't only say, not guilty. He says, you are justified. And justified means you are righteous. Imagine you're on trial for murder, but the judge doesn't finalize the verdict by saying, not guilty. He says, no, you're righteous. You actually went out and saved people's lives. You are perfectly holy. And God, the judge, says to all those who cry out to him for mercy, who cry out for the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb, you are perfectly righteous. Not just you no longer have sins, I have also made it because of my son that you have lived perfectly all your life. Because of the lamb. Because of Jesus, who is the lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. This truth is expressed very succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For there it says, For our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. God put the punishment of sin on Him who had never sinned, it goes on, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Every good thing that Jesus ever did is placed on you, so that when God the Father looks down, if you trust in His Son, Jesus' perfect life is what He sees. You know, this is called the great exchange. Jesus gets all of our sin, and we get all of His righteousness. Every so often, our family will sign up to bring donuts on Sunday morning, and so on our way, normally in a panic, but that's a side story, we swing by Texas Donuts, best donut place in town. I don't get paid for these advertisements, by the way. Just to let you know. And so... At Texas Donuts, we give them our money, and they give us heavenly fried goodness. It's a great exchange. They get my money that I didn't care that much about for that amount, and they give me juicy morsels. It's a wonderful exchange. We both get something. And yet, in justification, we both don't get something wonderful. Christ got something horrible. He got our sin, and yet He gives us something wonderful. All of His righteous life in the gospel christ exchanges his righteous perfect life for all our sin thus we are righteous and at peace with god because christ fully took our sins and absorbed the wrath of god for us and jesus is showing showing us it's not because we live perfectly it's because jesus lived perfectly in our place And that is why it's not based on the Pharisees keeping in the law and even doing more than the law required. In fact, his focusing on what he did kept him from God. He was so focused on himself that he couldn't see God's blazing holiness. We see these truths laid out in Romans 3. If you look in your bulletin, we read this earlier. And if you look at verses 22 through 25, it says, "...for there is no distinction." for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Saying the same thing that's being said here, that God made Christ be our propitiation. That's a big word, which means He was the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He was that lamb that was sprinkled its blood on The altar. He took God's wrath so that we might receive only love. But then look down at verse 27 of Romans 3 because it goes on. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, this Pharisee here is boasting about all he's done and Paul is reminding us, look, if it's all about what Christ has done, There's no level, there's no room for us to boast. And when we've come to grasp we don't add a single thing to our salvation except our sin, then we boast in what Christ did for us. Not any of the things we've done. In fact, we become humbled. It kills our pride. Yet while it kills our pride, it can also give us great hope. For like the tax collector, we can often know We are great sinners. Now, when you look at yourself, what do you see? Do you see someone perfect? Or someone marred? Maybe you look at the mirror and you say, Man, I look good. Or maybe you look at the mirror and you go, I don't like what I see. Perhaps there's an internal judge that's always condemning you. Always telling you of how you don't measure up. And how you failed in the past. Well, God looks down and if you're covered by the blood of his son, he says, ruined, but made perfect. Sinful, but forgiven. Rebel, but loved. And the problem here that Jesus is showing us though is, we often know this in our head, but it doesn't work down into our heart Because if we had asked the Pharisee, if we'd slid him a doctrinal test, a theological exam, and said, Are you saved by your works? Are you saved by God's grace? He would have checked God's grace. And yet, the way he lived was that it was all about what he did. You know, we who have read the Bible, who know, we can say, Oh, yeah, yes, I'm saved by faith, I'm saved by grace, I'm saved by Christ. And yet, we all have the whispers in our hearts that say, but I sure am glad I'm not like those people. And then we feel a little smug satisfaction that we're better than them. And we exalt ourselves. And Christ is warning that it's deadly destructive. It can lead to an eternity of being rejected by Him. So how does this pride manifest itself? Well, let me give you five quick ways First, our pride can manifest itself with our doctrine, with what we believe. We can say things like, or maybe not say them, but think, Thank you, God, we're not like other churches. We don't sing watered down songs. We preach expositional sermons. We sing songs with depth. It doesn't really matter because our righteousness is not in the type of church we have, it's in Christ. We can have pride in what we believe. I thank you, God, that I'm not like those intellectual Christians rejecting creation, rejecting God's sovereignty. I hold to what the Bible says, and we look down on others. We can be proud about our health. Thank you, God, I'm not like those people who eat at McDonald's, eat processed food and Spam. I only eat and drink whole grains and non-processed foods. I work out. I don't eat and drink all that sugar like those slobs. But all of these things have deadly reversals the other way. God, I thank you I'm not like those priggish snobs and all those health nuts out there. I eat my Spam. I love my cheese Whiz. And I'm quite proud of my iceberg lettuce. Take that, you prigs. We can feel superior to others based on our health. We can feel superior about our intellect. I'm so glad I'm not like those dumb sheep always led astray by what the TV's telling them and politicians. I know what's going on. I read for myself. I'm not some sheep being led astray. Or can you believe how many times Pastor Jeremy misspoke this morning? Boy, he sure misspeaks a lot. Did you see all those typos in the bulletin? Man. Did you see they said there with the E-I when it should have been R-E? Oh my Goodness, I'm glad I'm not like those people. We can be proud about our social class and standing. Oh my goodness, do they ever not wear pajamas? Boy, I'm not going to that store. Have you seen the type of people that go in that store? Go search that on Google. On the flip side, we can again flip it the other way. Wow, could you believe how picky she was? She is so hooty snooty about everything. Sure, glad I'm not stuck up like her. And so, whether it's your social class, or your intellect, or your health, or anything, we have these whispers in our heart that says, sure, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm a little better than they are. And we exalt ourselves, and we put them down. And Jesus is warning that that's deadly serious. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that some of those things aren't better than others. Maybe it's better to have a certain diet. Maybe it's better to be in a different class. The point is not what class are you in, what type of food you eat, what kind of intellect. The question is, how do you view yourself because of that? Do you look down on others and feel better about yourself? And Jesus is warning of the great danger of this sin. He couldn't have been clear in his warning. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so we need to be vigilant with ourselves when those whispers of pride come into our heart. To put them to death. Because they are deadly serious. They're more serious than any virus that exists. They're more serious than any financial crisis that could have happened. Pride is a deadly sin, and we must put it to death. However, I'm concerned that often the way Christians conceive of and live out their Christian life undercuts our ability to grow. So I wanted to end by helping us think through how can we put pride to death. I'm not a PowerPoint expert, but I made a little PowerPoint. And I know it's really small. But uh, this has been a helpful chart for me, and hopefully it will be for you as well. Here, it's called the cross chart, and on the front, on the top, if you can read that, I know it's super fine print, it says God's character. And on the middle is our character, the distance that exists between us and God. And when we come to realize our sin, we realize we need the cross to make up that gap, that between us and God, the distance is so great that only by what Jesus did can we be saved. But my question is, what does the Christian life look like after that? And I think most people perceive it like this. That as we grow as a Christian, we're slowly getting better and better. We're slowly becoming more like God. Now, in a sense, that's true. But I want to argue this morning that in fact, what our experience should be is that not that we're actually becoming worse, but that in our perception of ourself and God's character, we're actually becoming worse and worse. Now, again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying you actually become saved and then you like, go end up doing things that cause you to go to prison. I'm saying that as you come to understand God's holiness, as you come to understand your sin, you will see that there's a greater gap in what you have done and what you need to be saved. And see, the, one of the reasons this is important is because if you see that you're growing and that you're becoming more and more like God, then your need for the cross, your need for Christ, it actually shrinks. I don't need him as much because I'm a little bit better than I was a year ago. I'm a little more holy. I'm doing more things. But if we're growing to see our sin, then our understanding, our delight in God is going to grow. That we are going to see a greater need for Christ, for the cross in our life. And yet, see, the problem is not just that we'll see less of our need for God, but as our view of our need for God diminishes, it actually leads to us loving God and others less. The more you have that view of the Pharisee that, thank you God that I'm not like other people. I'm not like this tax collector. Well, then you're never going to turn out around and love that tax collector. Because you're superior to him. And you don't want anything to do with him. But as you grow in your understanding of your sin, we'll see that your love grows. But there's a problem because if it's all about this, well, what's making up the gap? Because there was, up here, God's Holiness, and our sin, but now we think we're here. Well, we fill up those gaps with our religion. Hey, I'm better because I go to church. Or moralism. You don't have to be a religious person to do this. I'm better because I take care of the environment. Uh, I make sure I vote for the right people. Or legalism, where all these rules are your self-righteousness and it leads to pride. And yet I want to show you from Scripture that this is not the way... We should view ourselves. And this isn't just something clever. We can see this in the Apostle Paul. Now I know this is small, but you have all the verses on the back of your bulletin. Because as the Apostle Paul went through his ministry, he grew to see himself as more and more of a sinner. So you can look and read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. And there, Paul says that he is the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. As you know, the apostles were the foundational leaders of the church. They saw the risen Christ. And Paul is saying around AD 55, and all these dates are estimates. We don't know the exact day they wrote. Paul is saying, look, I'm the worst of all the leaders. Well, about five years later, and again, these are estimates, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians 3.8, he says to me, Though so I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. So he had thought I'm the worst of all the leaders, but now he's saying, actually, I'm the worst of all Christians. Like I know a lot of Christians, and I'm like the worst of them. But then, about five years later, again an estimate in 1 Timothy 1.15, he writes, "Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." You may have heard the phrase, "the chief of sinners." so Paul is saying, look, it's not that I'm just not one of the good leaders. It's not just that I'm like one of the worst Christians. If you look at the world and you consider sinners, I'm the worst sinner. Now again, we're not talking about what we actually do. Because Paul is no longer killing Christians. Paul in many ways is a much more moral person. But he's saying, in light of what I understand of myself, in light of understanding about what God is and who God is, I realize I'm the worst person I know. I know that in my heart are the seeds of any sin. And then if it wasn't for the grace of God, so go I. And so we see Paul growing in his understanding of his need for Christ. And yet there's a problem here too, because if you grow in your knowledge of sin, but you don't grow in your knowledge of your need for Christ, well then... Something is going on here. Because Christ only, in your mind, saves us much. So what's going on? Well, you have a lot of guilt. Because boy, I was saved and I'm still dealing with this. I'm not a very good Christian. And there's fear. Am I even a Christian? There's shame. I couldn't tell my sister in Christ or my brother in Christ about what I'm thinking. Because, like, I lead a Bible study sometimes. And if they hear that I like got really mad and wanted to like punch my boss, they're going to, Not wanting to come to my Bible study. And they're not going to think well of me. And there's a lot of insecurity. What am I like? I thought I was supposed to be changed. I thought I was supposed to be growing as a Christian. And it can lead to despair. What is going on? I thought I was supposed to be growing. And yet, if we're growing to see that, look, Christ covered all of those sins. He didn't just cover the ones that He knew of before I became a Christian. He covered all the ones after. Well, I realized the blood of the Lamb, the cross, is enough for all of it. And when Jesus told this parable, He told of the mercy seat. He knew that He was going to be the one who would come. That He would be the one who took every single one of your sins. He knew everything about you, and He said, that blood is enough. So that everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Will be justified. So to put this all together, remember Jesus' words about the Pharisees and the tax collector. The whole point is, how did they view themselves? The tax collector realized he didn't deserve any of God's goodness and mercy. The Pharisee, he thinks, oh, I deserve it. And you know, the way we view ourselves is going to manifest itself in our relation to others. Because if we are not viewing ourselves as more in need of Christ as the chief of sinners, then our love is going to shrink. But if each day we're growing, seeing more of God's holiness and more of the sin that still resides, and yet Christ fills up every single sin that will increase our love for Him. It will then allow us to... Treat with love those that maybe we used to look down on and go, how could they ever do that? We can go, I could be in that exact same place if God hadn't reached down and delivered me. And so we can minister and love all types of people. Now, i end with this quote, quote that's helped me many times. Jerry Bridges writes, On your best days, you are never beyond the need of God's grace. And on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may we see your Son. May we focus on Him. Lord, forgive us for the many whispers of pride in our heart that like to boast of how good we are. And may we see that your Son is enough, that nothing for sin can atone except the blood of Jesus. Lord, may He be our hope, our strength, our righteousness. It's in His name we pray. Amen.